Well, I really want to say good morning, which I know is wrong, but I do it every time. So, good evening. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Acts tonight. The book of Acts, starting in chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. So, if you don't mind to stand to honor the word of God. All right. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 5, going down to 13, it says, And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people... And elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner." Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray as we get into your word tonight that you'd be honored in what is said. I pray as we get into your word tonight that our hearts would be ready to hear it. I pray that as we learn more or maybe reflect on things that we already know, that we would look at them afresh, that we would say, am I living in a way that honors God? And where am I missing the boat? God, work in my heart first. And I pray the work that you're doing in me would reach out to everyone else as well. And I pray, Lord, that your word would go out and accomplish what you've set for it to do. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You know, so often when we look at uh, people in the Bible, we look at them as otherworldly figures. Uh, we look at them as so far above us, we can't imagine being like they are. Um, and sometimes I think we think of them beyond what they are. Um, and some of them we see that with. Like Peter, we, we've heard he's got what kind of shaped mouth? A foot-shaped mouth. Um, and I hope that's not literal. That'd be a really weird portrait. Um, but what we find is everyone in the Bible outside of Jesus had some flaws. And the truth is that God uses the very base things to confound the wise. He uses the basics. 1 Corinthians one twenty eight. And the base things of this world, and the things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. If we took an honest look at anyone in the Bible, or even as we walk through history, what you would see is that these men especially some of the greatest men you can think of, a lot of them weren't that special in and of themselves. 
They may not have had the best beginnings. They may have some hiccups in their story along the way. I'm going to give you a few of these. Uh, D.L. Moody, very, very famous guy. He was an uneducated 18-year-old shoe salesman. That means there's hope for all of us. <laughs> but you know what? He was humble. He sought the Lord, and he saw souls everywhere he went, and God used him greatly. Spurgeon was saved at 15, preached his first message at 16, was pastoring his first church at 18, and was preaching in London by 20. He was never formally educated. He never went to college for it. He didn't even technically get ordained. But he was greatly used by God. Adoniram Judson, who was actually a very smart man, went to college at 16, graduated at 19 as valedictorian. Actually, real quick, I think I've got a picture of Spurgeon. Imagine that guy standing up. This is him when he's young. Again, he got up at 16, went up and started preaching to people. Um, so this would have been your preacher, and that was me probably two years ago. I'm just saying. Um, but nonetheless, thank you for that. Um, but Adoniram Judson was a very smart man, but he actually had a time when he decided he wasn't sure he believed in the God he grew up with. He had a friend who was an atheist, and he went to become a deist for a while. But you know what? From the time that he graduated college until his friend's untimely death of a sickness, he lived in that moment. He lived in that mode of unbelief in God. And it wasn't until his friend had passed away that he said, you know what? I don't know what I was thinking. There is a God, and I don't want to get in trouble with him. And he became one of the greatest missionaries Burma's ever seen. Between him and the people who worked with him, thousands of people came to Christ. You see, most people miss that it's not how you start, and sometimes you'll mess things up along the way. But how do you end? These men were just like the disciples, the apostles. Some of them had pretty rough beginnings, pretty rough middles. Some of them, even at the end, you're like, Peter, did you really make that mistake again? And sometimes I think he was looking back at us saying, hey, did you really do that again? Um, but think about it. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were zealots. They were all these different things. Paul was a tent maker. You have the occasional esteemed person, but that's not the norm. And the good news then is that it's not the power of man, but the power of God that will transform a life. And the central idea I want you to get tonight is that God changed the world through ordinary men who abode in an extraordinary God. And then who are we abiding in? First point I want you to see is the fact that they were persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're going to start in verses 5 through 7 again. It says, And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now our verse starts with saying, On the morrow. So the natural question is, what happened the day before? 
What just happened? Why? What happened that led to this? They're in front of this trial, this tribunal. What was going on? Well, at the beginning of this chapter, Peter and John were taken to jail for preaching about Jesus. They were preaching about Jesus' power to heal sickness and disease. They were teaching about his power to heal people from their sin. They were teaching about his position as God's anointed prophet that was going to be like unto Moses. They were teaching about his death that the Jews called for and his resurrection that they all know happened. And he's come before them and he said, this is what we're preaching. This is what's going on. And needless to say, that was not well received. Acts 4, 1 through 2, it says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. That sounds sudden. Being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you're not familiar with what's been going on, Peter and John had healed a man. The man was lame from his birth. That does not mean he was uncool. It means his legs didn't work. He was lame from his birth, and he had been lame for over about 40 years. It was an extensive period of time. And so the man gets healed, and as you would expect from a man who's been coming to the same place outside of the temple for 40 years, when he's jumping around and excited and standing and hooting and hollering and all over the place, everyone is wanting to see what in the world is going on. What has happened? Well, it's worth noting then that God is using these signs and these miracles to prepare people for the message that he's going to give them. God doesn't use miracles and signs for no reason. It was generally to confirm a message that he was bringing forward. Hebrews 2, it talks about this. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and with gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And so we know that he rose from the dead. How then will you get escape if you don't deal with this salvation he's put forth. He's shown incredible signs, incredible miracles, incredible things, not the least, rising from the dead. Hello. But you see, now we have this ragtag team of priests and Sadducees and all these people. And I say ragtag. They're really the elite class. But the reason I say ragtag is because they don't even all agree with each other. It's really funny how that works. The enemy of your enemy is apparently your friend. Well, let's look at some of those. The priests, first off, are those who would have then performed the sacred acts of the temple. They were the priests of the Old Testament. They'd do the sacrifices. They would be the people who likely were doing teachings. They might have also encompassed some of the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes. Um, These were people who would have been the elite, the teachers. And so when you see unlearned and ignorant men coming forth and teaching the people, you don't really like that very much. Who does that guy think he is? I'm the one who went to college for this. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. First off, college didn't exist. But um, 
But, you know, there, there was actually a rabbinic schooling, a rabbinic training, and it went through three houses. Um, there were the one that all the kids went through up to 12, and they would essentially learn the first five books of the Old Testament, almost to the point they could memorize them. So think about how hard we don't push our kids knowing that 12-year-olds were reciting basically any part of the Torah. Um, but going on from that, the boys then would potentially continue till 15 in the second house of learning. And they would then learn the rest of the Old Testament. And then after that, what you have is you have the boys that are extremely gifted, the ones that seem to really get the scriptures. They would apprentice under a rabbi. And they would move into the third house of learning called uh, Bet Midrash, which is the house of interpretation learning how to interpret the scriptures rightly and do these things. And that's what the rabbinic training was. That's what they were looking for out of these people. And what they noticed is uh, Peter and John didn't do that. And Jesus didn't do that. As a matter of fact, he basically took them as their rabbinic training. But actually, you'd normally train from about 16 to 30. So if you think your job has a long apprenticeship... Just saying. Um, so they didn't like that. They didn't like them coming forward. They didn't like the people teaching a lesson that wasn't their lesson. All right, whatever. Next, we have the captain of the temple. This is the like guard of the temple. This is the head person. He's basically underneath only the high priest. He's there to make sure things are going right. Acts 4.4, 4, it says, How be it, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of them was about 5,000. So think about this. Acts 2, how many people got saved? 3,000. By Acts 4, some people say this includes that 3,000. Some people say it's another 5,000. I'm going to go with the latter. Either way, you've got 5,000 people, if not 8,000 people, who are now running around Jerusalem believing this doctrine of Jesus. This guy is freaking out. He's like, I don't know why these people are causing an uproar. Let's go get them. He's worried about the craziness that is ensuing around the temple. And finally, you also have the Sadducees. Um, and, you know, if you don't remember who they are, the way that I always remember them is if you don't believe the Bible, it will make you sad, you see. Um, these were some people that were put in power, but they were more figureheads of power. They didn't actually have a great understanding of the Bible. As a matter of fact, they denied extensive parts of the Bible, especially the resurrection from the dead. Um, so as a matter of fact, uh, pastor is going to get there in like four more years, but it's Matthew. Um, in Matthew 23, you have the most scathing rebuke of any of those people, the scribes, the Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites like a ton of times whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Anyway, Matthew 22, you see why he's calling them all these names. They spend the whole chapter going after him one by one by one. They're asking him questions. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to make him look bad in front of all the people. And so in Matthew 22, a Sadducee came to Jesus and said, uh, the Sadducees came to him, and those are they that don't believe there's a resurrection, according to Matthew 22, 22. And I'm going to summarize the story for you, but they give a story that goes like this. They say, there is a woman, and she marries a man. And although they're married, they have no kids, and her husband dies. 
Now in their culture, you would marry the brother of that man so you can raise up seed to that family name. So she marries the brother. And they have no kids, and that brother dies. And they keep doing this seven times. It's the last brother. And finally, the last brother dies, and she dies. And they're like, all right, Jesus, you're so smart. Whose wife is she in the resurrection? And here's Jesus' response. It's beautiful, by the way. Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is spoken unto you by God? In case that wasn't clear. Saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You see, God is the God of the not the God of the dead, but of the living. Note he didn't say, I was the God of those people. He said, I am the God of those people. And in such ways saying, they are alive with me right now. So he just, you know, trounces them on every, every turn. And so you've got these collective groups that, like I said, are all different. They have a different reason why they don't like these two men, a different reason why they want to go stop them from their preaching, a different reason. But ultimately, it's because they're saying, what you guys did in killing Jesus was wrong, and God raised him from the dead, showing you you're wrong. And so because of that, they're like, no, we got to get rid of those guys. <laughs> now, after spending the night in jail, that would be John, Peter, and by the way, they took the guy who got healed and threw him in jail too. <laughs> Acts 4.14 tells us this. It says, And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Think about this for a minute. This is a side note. Could you imagine how discouraging it would be? You spent your whole life in absolute bondage you can't move your legs. You can't get up. You can't jump. You can't run. You can't play. You lost your whole childhood. You got nothing. And the day you get healed, they throw you in prison. This guy's like, I can't win. Actually, it made me think of a GIF, uh, a movie that I've seen. A GIF is a moving, like, multi-frame picture. So here's the thing. I'm in a weird age. People older than me say I'm really young. People younger than me think I'm really old. I don't know what it's about. I, we even had uh, someone once tell me uh, they thought I was like in my mid to late 30s. And I was partially offended by that because he's trying to add 10 years to me. Um, but I, I, you know, not that that's old, don't get me wrong. But... I'm not quite that old yet. But what I find is sometimes things I may reference, people may not know. So I think everybody will know this. How many of you guys are familiar with The Hunchback of Notre Dame? Sweet. I wasn't sure if we'd have any teens or anything. All right, this is my favorite scene from the movie, okay? You ready? I'm free, I'm free. Oh, dang it. And he goes immediately cast into the stocks. By the way, later in the movie, when the stocks break, he falls in a hole. Yeah. Just clarifying. That's exactly what this guy felt like. I'm sure of it. 100%. You can turn that off. Thank you. <laughs> it's exactly what he felt like, I bet. Now, it reminds me of that. I think about it all the time. 
That's it's a fantastic portion. But this man, after finally being broken free of not being able to use his legs, finally excited, probably, I, it, I mean, it would be irony if he got put in stocks, like, right away. That, that anyway. Um, so the night after they're taken to jail, they're brought before the high priest and different members of his family, as well as other temple leaders. And the shorthand of this is, you got sent to the principal's office. Like, you're right here, they're against you, they're going to tell you everything you did wrong, and, you know, they're hoping you're going to say, yes, sir, and move on. Uh, that has not happened. <laughs> so these higher-ups ask a question. By what power or name have you done this? By what power or what name have you done this? So I want to let you know these priests, these high priests, these men of renown set themselves up for failure. It was a bad question. They will gladly tell you whose name it was through. But you see, what they're trying to do is they're trying to catch these people in a no-win situation. The Bible says in the Old Testament, if a prophet tries to pull the people of Israel away from their God to follow another God, you're to kill them. False prophets, people who try to make you follow false gods, not a joke. Very serious in the Bible. Now, here's what goes on with that. They're trying to get them to prove, hey, you're for something that's not good. You're for something that's not God. You're for something that's different. They did the same thing to Jesus, remember? You do this through the power of Beelzebub. Oh, they're saying he does it through the power of the devil, the lord of the flies, the lord of the dung. Well, they throw this right back in their face. Um, but I want you to think about this. This would have been a very scary event. We're, we're kind of detached from it, but these are the same people who had Jesus killed. It's not somebody who has no powers, never done anything to potentially hurt you or your group. They literally killed your leader two to three months ago. And now you're sitting in front of them. You're preaching about the guy they killed and telling them they were wrong. This is a moment where there could be fear. This is a moment where there could be difficulty. But... That's not what we see. You know, Jesus warned them that while they were on this earth, they would have persecution. They knew it was coming. A lot of you guys are doing 242. You read Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people persecute you for my name's sake. You know, he goes through all that stuff. But we like to detach ourselves, but how would you have fared in this scenario? Do you have boldness to share your faith then? And before you answer that, do you have boldness to show your faith now? Because I promise you, if you won't do it when there's nothing going on, you're not very likely to do it when there's going to cost you something. And if not, why not? I don't know enough is not a good answer. The woman at the well just ran around telling people Jesus saved her and you need to come meet him. There's got to be something you can do. Now, sometimes we get to this point and, you know, we like to kind of make ourselves feel better for not opening our mouths. I don't know about you guys, sometimes... I find myself trying to justify my sin. And I have, to, I have to repent of it, I have to get it right, I have to not do that. But we do that in our minds. 
And if it was left to us and only us, we would get ourselves in a lot of trouble. Luckily, we've got other people around us, keep us accountable, they'll call you out on things, or you ought to have people around you who can call you out on things. And so here's one statement that people make that I think needs addressed. Uh, Francis Assisi has a famous saying that goes, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. How do you preach without words? Actions. And that sounds great. But how are they going to get the message? Am I like, what am I doing here? I can't just like act out the letters. Like how do I, that'd be like saying, give me your phone number and if necessary, use digits. How are you going to do that? You must use words. You have to preach the gospel. It is a heralding of the message. Now, that's not to say everyone is called to come up and stand in front of a group filled of people and preach the message. But God saves you where you are to be a light where you are. And that doesn't just mean what actions you do there, but what influence you can have on them and message you can give to them. Because you then have the message of eternal life. And you are accountable to it. You know, Luke 16.10, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful in much. He that is unjust in least is unjust also in much. I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to read the rest of that passage. But here's, here's the idea. Learn to be faithful in sharing your faith now. There will be a time in America when it's not as comfortable to be a Christian. And we are trying to dive bomb for that era. We are heading down a road because we decide, for some reason, we want to follow Canada and the United Kingdom, and we're about 10 years behind them and 20 years behind them. And, and they said 80% of people, if I remember the statistic right, I was reading a book, it was in there, in the United Kingdom will not go to church for any reason at all whatsoever. They're not going for help. They're not going for funerals. They're not going for weddings. They're not going for anything. And so this idea of I'm just going to only invite them to church and I'm never going to actually talk to them about Jesus eventually is not going to work. Eventually, you're going to have to actually talk to them about Jesus. Now, granted, we're not quite there. But again, look at the direction. Point two I want you to see this is not of their own power, but this is a ministry empowered by God. Acts 4, 8 through 11. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he's made whole, be it known unto you all and unto all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which, you, which is set at naught of you builders and is become the head of the corner. The first thing I want you to see in that passage comes in verse 8. Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. 
It was not Peter doing things in his own power. It was not Peter just thinking about the best way he could rip these people up. It's not Peter out for vengeance. Now, I want to be clear. The filling of the Holy Ghost and the baptism of the Holy Ghost are different things. Baptism of the Holy Ghost happens once. It's when you get saved, the Holy Ghost enters, it's there. Filling of the Holy Ghost happens more than once. You can be more or less filled. And the reason that we say that is seen kind of pretty well in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Uh, it says, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm sure nobody in here has ever been drunk, but what you notice is when you're drunk, to some degree, you lose some of your control. You are much easily, much more easily persuaded. You are much more easily led one way or another. And the idea of being filled with the Spirit is the idea of being controlled by the Spirit. It's leading and letting yourself up to what God would have for you. Uh, we find ourselves filled with the Holy Ghost when we seek God's will, His ways, and His words. God's will, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not into thine own understanding. and all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. See, we lean on God's will. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Not my will, thy will. When we try to focus on God's will, when we're trying to do what God would have us to do, you're a lot more likely to be filled with the Spirit. That's exactly what these men are doing. They're taking the commission that was given them at the end of Matthew. They're taking the Acts 1-8 commission to start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and go to the uttermost parts of the earth preaching the gospel. And so you see that. They're focused on God's will. What does he have for me? Then they need to be focused on God's ways. Galatians 5.16, and this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You see, the two are contrary one to the other. You can't do both at once. And so the filling of the spirit goes along with walking in the spirit. In other words, don't give yourself over to sinful things that you know you're not supposed to be doing, but instead give yourself over to what God would have you to do. Find the fruits of the spirit. And all I can do is think of the children's song right now and do the motions. That's it. I'm, I'm stuck right there. And finally, God's word. We know John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. But listen to Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Man, we can seriously underestimate the power of being in God's word, being in God's ways, focusing on God's will. And if you don't believe this means that, then let me show you something in Acts 5. Acts 5, 3, it says, But Peter said, Ananias, you guys familiar with this story? Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about how much they sold something for. They want to be looked at really good in the church. 
And so they lie, they bring it to the apostles' feet, they say, hey, we sold it for this much. And they're like, did you? And they're like, "Uh uh-huh, sure did. No, you didn't. Um, But here's what he said. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? You know, when we choose to sin, we're choosing who is leading us one way or another. We're choosing, when we choose what we're doing, either we're going back to our vomit of sin or we're following God who is clean and pure and good. And I want to tell you, I wholeheartedly believe Ananias was a Christian. And I believe we can get ourselves into trouble by allowing Satan to influence us. Now, that's not possessed, that's not anything like that, I don't think that's possible. But we see that he, Satan had filled his heart to lie to the Holy Ghost. So fill yourself up with Christ. Fill yourself up so far with Christ that it literally is oozing out of you. If, you, if they cut you, you ought to bleed Bible. You ought to bleed Jesus. I, I say it all the well. I say it to some people all the time. One of my favorite introductions that I hear anybody do, my friend John will say, I'm John and I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's always how he'd introduce himself. Fantastic, I love it. You know, they say there were Christians that were being tortured through history, some of which wouldn't say their name even. They would just give they were Christian. Christian, what spills out of you? What's in you? When you get squeezed, what comes out? Are you living a life that's empowered by God? Or are we trying to live in our own power? By the way, that works terribly. I'm far weaker than I think I am. Nothing makes me more humble with that than going to jujitsu, by the way. Every once in a while, I'll think, like, I can wrestle a little bit. I, I, can, I got some skill in jujitsu. I will have one guy... He's been doing kickboxing for 30 years. New to jiu-jitsu, though. So I'm like, all right, I can take this guy. That guy, like, broke me in half. The guy's got me by, like, 50 pounds. He's so strong. He's, like, cranking my elbow up here. I'm like, this isn't fun. (laughs) I'm like, I thought I was going to do good. I overestimated myself and underestimated that guy. That guy's a beast. And it's easy to do. We can't do things in our own power. But are you leaning into God's? So going back to Acts 4.8, I don't want to get too far off here. Let's look at some of the things that led Peter to be filled with the Spirit. If you're not familiar, all of chapter 3 is about the healing and the message and them going and, and preaching and doing this. So the, next, the first time you see anything past that is Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. That should be a very familiar passage for you guys. It says, Then they that gladly received his words were baptized. So believers getting baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They're added to the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They stayed in the word and fellowship. They stayed in unity and they stayed together. In breaking of bread, this is likely probably the Lord's Supper, communion, which, by the way, shows a picture of us all coming together in one and being one in Christ as he is the husband to our bride. Does that make sense? 
And so we have all these pictures going on. These people are in the word. They're staying together. They're doing communion. They're doing prayers is the next part of the verse. And fear came upon every soul. Now, you'll understand this at some point. Love and fear are two sides of the same coin. I love my mom to death. I am terrified of that woman. (laughs) She will murder me. Um, And I will feel bad the whole time she's doing it. When the Bible talks about how we're to love God, it also talks about how we're to fear God. And so fear came upon every soul, and it says many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Not by everybody, by the apostles. And all that believed were together. They had all things common, and they sold their possessions and goods. They took care of each other. They parted them to all men as every man had need. Now that's not to say God says we should be communists. First off, this was not something they told you you had to do. As a matter of fact, we find out in Ananias and Sapphira, they say, you didn't have to do any of this. And instead, you lied about it. What's your problem? But what you see is they had an intense care, an intense love for one another that made them willing to do that, willing to go get rid of something so that they could care for someone else, willing to benefit other people at the cost of their own self. And they continued daily. This was not a once in a while thing. There was a kind of faithfulness to this. So again, Christ was preached. People are baptized. They're staying in the word. They're enjoying fellowship. They're breaking bread, doing the Lord's Supper. They're praying. They're taking care of each other. Let's move down to 47. Praising God. That's not something to be forgotten. They had a singleness of heart. They had an idea they were coming together. And they had favor with all people. I'm going to tell you a secret. When you become a Christian, it shouldn't make you a worse person. It should make you a better one. It should make you a better one. It should make you more agreeable. It should make you more the fruits of the Spirit, not less. If after you became a Christian, you became like, I don't know, a crotchety person, I'm sorry. You, you got to work on that because you you're not being led by the Spirit in that moment. Now, that said, we do still need to deal with sin and, and figure things out because we can't let things go on and be rampant, but that's not what I mean. If this caused, verse 47, and the Lord added unto the church daily, such as should be saved. Some, some translates that, such as were saved. But if this is what led to people being added to the church daily, I wonder what would happen if we would be at serious and do that today. I wonder what would happen if we were serious about coming together in fellowship, serious about not missing meeting up for the word, serious about staying in our Bible, serious about taking communion and thinking about what it means and really being interested in getting rid of our sin. I wonder what would happen if we were serious about praying to God and really leaning on him, if we were serious about taking care of each other and praising God for what he's done. You know, that's part of why we created the 242 program. What we want is we want a magnificent work done in this place. We want a magnificent work done in you. We want a magnificent work done in us. We want a magnificent work done in this city. We want to see God change Xenia. See God change the surrounding areas. Verse 9 Let's look at what it says. Acts 4, verse 9. It says, And if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he's made whole, if we're going to look at 
the good deed that was done, you're trying to paint this out as something bad, you're trying to show us as false prophets, you're trying to show us that we're not following God. If you really want to look at the good thing that was done, that what made this man whole, surely you can't be against healing people. Well, then let's look at that. If you're not familiar, like I said, the first half of chapter 3, there's a man who's been waiting outside the gate called Beautiful. It would have been a gate that was bigger than all the gates. It's sometimes called the nine-car gate. It's sometimes called the Corinthian gate. It is covered in precious metals. It's so heavy, it takes 20 people to move it. It's bigger than all the other gates. And he's sitting by it, asking people to have mercy, to have pity on him, to help him. Because he literally can't work. And he gets healed, just like that, completely, outside of the temple. And that created this massive interest in Peter and John. But Peter and John don't want the interest for themselves. They point it back to Christ. Peter repeats the question to them. He said, if you want to know what caused this, make no mistake, it was Jesus. In his answering, he shocks the Jews a little bit. Acts 4, 10, and 11, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God hath raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He says, this is done in the name of Jesus. And he notes which Jesus? The Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a common name. I want to clarify that. The name meant salvation. The Lord is salvation. That's, that's the concept. It comes from the same name that creates Joshua, Jesus. It's the same in Greek, by the way. You'll run into some trouble with that in the book of Hebrews if you're not paying attention to it. Don't ask me why I mentioned Hebrews again. But look, the one that you crucified, the one that God raised from the dead, and you know what's interesting? The Jews don't try to deny the fact either that they crucified him or that God raised him from the dead. They're very well aware that they paid soldiers to lie and say that they stole the body. To say that while the soldiers slept, the disciples came in and stole the body. How do you know that? You were asleep. Tell me how you know that. Did you have your high-def security camera? I don't think so. It's not a good lie. And the problem is, is any lie is going to fall short of the truth. This is the same message, by the way, that they preached in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. And now they're in chapter 4 talking to the highest of the highest group saying, hey, you killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead, this one that you turned against, God has made the chief one. God has given the preeminent place. God is setting him as the cornerstone, the one that all this will be built off of. Note, he's quoting an Old Testament passage. They were faithful in knowing their Bible, too. And in some ways, it uses similar language even to Isaiah 8 and 28. But you see, these builders couldn't accept Jesus. They decided he couldn't be the Christ. They were offended at him. And because of that, they'll be destroyed. They killed him thinking that'd be the end of the story. I don't have to deal with Jesus if he's gone. But instead, they fulfilled exactly what God said, exactly what God intended. I don't know if you know this, you can't outdo God. Should make sense. 
apparently it didn't. At least Gamaliel's smart enough to know that. He later is like, hey, let's, let's do this. If it doesn't work, we don't want to fight God. And they, they listen to him for a little while. But you see, Christ became the head of the corner, the head of what God was building, the foundation stone that all this church would be based upon, all his holy church would be. So friend, the question is, what have you done with Christ? Because not only have the builders set him at naught, they said, you're not good enough to be the Christ. You're not good enough to be the Savior. You're not what we expected, Jesus. And you can't just make a Jesus of your own choosing. You have to take the Jesus that God puts forth. Otherwise, you have a Jesus that isn't real and can't save you. Because as, as a basic, if it's not real, it can't save you. I feel like that makes sense. Look, this isn't the first time they talk about this. This isn't the first time. Remember, chapter, chapter, chapter. They're going again and again and again. And not only that, they keep quoting the Old Testament. You know what's really blowing these Jews' minds? These men who are not trained these men who have not gone through the house of interpretation, these men that are not rabbis, are taking the Old Testament and saying, this is the correct interpretation of it. This is how Jesus applied it. This is how we've seen it come to fruition. And you guys are missing it. And you guys don't get it. And he's offering them the chance to make that right, but will they? The disciples point they didn't want to go start a new religion. I don't know if you realize that. The disciples weren't like, we don't like Judaism. We're creating Christianity. They were trying to bring about the Messiah of Judaism. They're trying to talk and introduce people to their Savior. They weren't trying to start something new. They're saying, you guys, first off, weren't following actual Judaism. You were following works-based garbage. And you need to understand all these scriptures, we're not turning those off. We're saying, look at how they're rightly applied. Look at the God who's here. They're showing Jesus as the Messiah they've been waiting for. Which brings us to point three. There is one way and only one. In Acts 4.12, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You see, this message should have been apparent to these Jews, but they have a problem. They don't think they're sinners. It's really hard to look for a savior when you don't think there's anything wrong with you. Because by definition, if you're not a sinner, you don't need a savior. And we see that work itself out in Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, he had to do a whole parable about people who were trusting in themselves. He talked about a publican and a uh, Pharisee who both went up to, you know, pray to God. And the one is standing up and saying, I, I tithe, I fast, I do all these things. And the other one is saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he wouldn't even come up to where everybody else was worshiping. And he goes and he says, which one do you think God forgave? There's no forgiveness if you're not willing to admit your sin. But you know, God, through the Apostle Peter, said that no one else can save us, and we must be saved. Friends, Christ is the only way, and this isn't the only place that says it. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In the Old Testament, their system couldn't save you. Hebrews talks about this extensively, how Christ was the better sacrifice, the better priest, the better 
everything. Hebrews 9.22, it says, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Blood was the picture of life in the Bible, Leviticus 17.11. What he's saying is, you cannot be saved without an atonement, without a death on your behalf. If it's yours, you don't have the righteousness to come back up from it. But if it's Christ's, he does. If he dies on your behalf, you can take his righteousness. Which is why Hebrews 9.12 says, Neither by the blood of bulls and goats. They tried to do it with animals. Animals are not good enough to save you. It says, But by his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And our good works can't save us. I think we know these verses. I'll quote two of them quickly. I'm going to skip Titus. Romans 3.28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. If you needed it any clearer, I can't help you. By faith, no deeds of the law. It's the caveman version. By faith, no works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. Finally, because of our sin, we have been set as an enemy against God, but at the same time, Christ lived a life that we couldn't. He died the death we deserve, and he did so so that you could be brought, instead of being an enemy of God, and be brought into the family of God. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. I'm going to skip the Hebrews passage, but listen here. To hear this message and not to turn to God is to look at God's gift and refuse to accept it. God is handing out a present, a gift, and saying, this is salvation, you can have it, I'll forgive you, we can be made right. And for you to say, I won't turn from my sin, I won't admit what I'm doing is wrong, I will not ask for a savior, is smacking it away. It's disrespectful to say the least. That's why Hebrews 2 said, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I was talking to a gentleman. I've got a guy I'm trying to see come to Christ. I've been talking to him and sharing the gospel with him and, and praying for him. And I invited him out tonight, hoping he would come and hear me. And he couldn't. But nonetheless, I said this to him at one point. He couldn't understand why it would bother God if people don't take Christ's sacrifice. And I'm like, all right, well, let's, let's go about it this way. How many of you guys like to pay for dinner? Not it. If I could have dinner, and not that I'm trying to put anybody else out, like I don't want you to have to pay for my dinner, but it, you know, free food sounds really great. Um, I know that probably hurts somebody eventually, so don't, it's not a way of life, it's just a moment, okay? <laughs> just throwing it out there. But our kids eat free all the time, at least as far as they're concerned. I can't tell you how annoying it is to me when we make our kids food and they refuse to eat it. I think it bothers me more than it bothers my wife. 
But I'm like, your mom just sat here and worked on that for an hour. I, that meal probably cost $1.75 for your portion. Obviously, that's not accurate. It's like $12.75. Anyway, but the point is, eat your meal. Eat the food. I provided it for you. How dare you smack in the face what I have just done for you? Man, that is such a minuscule point. How bad is it that we have a God who's offered to forgive everything you've ever done? He's offering to pay the fine, pay the penalty for your sin, and you say, nah, I'm good. Maybe, maybe right before I die. So let me live up and do everything wrong I can think to do. And then if you're lucky, Jesus, I might choose you then. Wow. Hope you make it that far. Sadly, a lot of times you don't. Sadly, a lot of times the stuff you get yourself into hardens you and you turn further and further and further from the gospel. That's why he says, if you hear the word of God, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation. When you hear God's word, don't harden your heart to it. If you hear God speaking to you, deal with it. Do it now. Today, you can go from being separated from God to being brought into his family. God is the father from the prodigal son story, and he looks onward towards you, his wayward child, saying, repent, come to me, and if you will, he'll be way more merciful than you could ever imagine. You see, this intense confrontation with the chief priests had an effect on them. And this leads us to our last point. Their actions reflected their relationship to Christ. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. As noted earlier, these were not professional theologians. But God doesn't care about that. God has so radically affected Peter and John that there was no other explanation than they had been with Jesus. Do you reflect him that way? Do you so much ooze God and ooze his word? And if you don't like the word ooze, I'm sorry. But if you don't show God, show that you've been with him, what are you showing? Have you been faithful to what he's called you to do? We are to be bold in Christ. We are to be witnesses of his resurrection. We are to live for Christ and have conduct worthy of the gospel. And friends, if Christ has saved you today, he saved you to live for him. That means we're going to fail sometimes, but we need to repent quickly to get back up and to get back on the road. And friend, if he hasn't saved you yet, there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved.